Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses issues of international significance. Today's topic is the uneasy relationship between the United States and the United Nations. We are fortunate to be able to talk today with Mark Lyman, Executive Director of the Universal Rights Group, a think tank focused on international human rights policy with offices in Geneva, New York, and Bogota. Prior to founding the Universal Rights Group in 2013, Mr. Lyman was a diplomat with the UN Human Rights Council from its creation in 2006 until late 2012. He has worked extensively in the United Nations on human rights issues. He speaks with us today uh, from Geneva. The offices, I should note, of the URG, the Universal Rights Group in New York, are located in the Ralph Bunch Institute. So we're very pleased to have them as part of the team. So on that note, let me begin with uh, the first question, which is a broad question, really, about the relationship between the United States and, and the United Nations. Uh, this is a relationship that's long had a tough reputation, really, among conservatives in the United States. Uh, and the relationship seems to have gotten much worse, really, since the advent of the Trump administration. And the United States, indeed, recently withdrew from the Human Rights Council, with which Mark Lyman is intimately familiar. Can you tell us about the reasons for and the consequences of the withdrawal? Yes, hi, John, and thank you for the invitation uh, to speak today. I mean, as you say, the United States has always had uh, an uneasy relationship with the United Nations, which is somewhat counterintuitive to say, because the United Nations is more than any more than any other country. It is a baby of the United States, uh, obviously established after the Second World War by the U.S. and the victorious Allies. Um, my speciality, of course, is is the human rights work of the United Nations. So I will focus on that in my answer. Um, but I think it probably ref the the U.S. relationship with the U.N.'s human rights pillar is reflective of an uneasy relationship with the wider United Nations, and maybe is even a microcosm for that uneasy relationship. Um, to understand really the relationship and why it's uneasy, uh, especially for conservative administrations, it's useful and, and instructive to go back to the end of the Second World War um, when. Basically, the uh, United States and especially, of course, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, helped shape the what was then the Commission on Human Rights and decided what the UN would and would not be able to do in this sphere of human rights. Um, and people often don't realize, but at that time, it was actually the big Western powers that wanted to keep the UN's human rights pillar relatively weak uh, and relatively non-intrusive. Uh, these days, people, of course, assume that it's Russia and China and Cuba and Iran and countries like that that don't want the UN looking into its human rights affairs. But back in the day, it was actually the US, the UK, France, Belgium, countries like that. Uh, and the reason for that is very simple, but also very interesting in, in, 
in um, when we think about what's going on in the United States at the moment with the protests. Uh, it was all to do with racism, uh, segregation in the U.S., uh, colonization and decolonization, which, of course, was important and um, of particular concern to the European powers. And quite simply, the the Western powers did not want the United Nations uh, sticking its nose in to those kinds of issues. Therefore, they decided at the beginning that it would take a softly, softly approach to issues of human rights, meaning that it would set the rules, which, of course, uh, explains the famous photograph of Eleanor Roosevelt holding up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That was obviously um, became a series of convention, international covenants and conventions on human rights, hard law. Uh, and they were really the universal norms, the rules that everybody should apply with. Um, but if countries didn't comply with those rules, then the view of the Western powers at the time was the UN should have no power to act. And that's uh, an actual quote from Eleanor Roosevelt from the first meeting of the Commission on Human Rights in, in Lake Success um, in the US. She said, the United Nations has no power to act on violations of human rights. What the US and the uh, European powers thought it should do is basically work with states over time to gradually bring their uh, human rights uh, records and human rights performance into line with these universal norms that were set by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights through basically cooperation and dialogue. Um, that all started to change in the 1960s and 70s when there was the big, inf well, one of the big influxes of new UN member states, the newly independent countries from around the world. Um, and that tipped the balance of the United Nations. And these countries, um, who a lot of them then became part of the expanded membership of the Commission on Human Rights, and obviously became part of the General Assembly as well, simply didn't accept, um, again, with echoes about what went on at the Human Rights Council last week with its special set, well, ex um, with a special debate on the United States. These countries, especially African and Caribbean and some Asian countries, simply did not accept and would not accept this US doctrine of no power to act. They thought that the United Nations should be able to look into serious human rights violations wherever they occur in the world. Um, and of course, straight in their crosshairs were situations of racism uh, and apartheid uh, and segregation, for example, in the United States. Um, and so that explains why the first ever country-specific UN human rights resolutions passed by the GA and then by the Commission on Human Rights were focused on apartheid South Africa, uh, the second set of resolutions and special procedure mandates were focused on Israel and, um, and the occupied Palestinian territories. The third lot was focused on Chile uh, under Pinochet, which, of course, was also an ally of the US. Um, but there was a lot of work done in those days on racism, um, and including new mechanisms and commissions established. And all of this made the Western powers very uneasy. And this is where you first start to see a kind of, I would say, a reaction 
from certain parts of the United States against the United Nations human rights system because it was no longer acting in the way that they had intended it to ask. They kind of lost control, lost power. And even worse, um, the United Nations was doing something which it should was never intended to do, which is to also, in Israelia, criticize the United States or criticize the United Kingdom. Um, and I really emphasize that point because it's still important to this day. Um, U.S. Uh, administrations, I would say diplomats less, but certainly U.S. Republican administrations, see the United Nations human rights system essentially as something that should be looking at the human rights records of developing countries, i.e. it's not something that is there to help or to look at the United States. It's there to look at countries in the developing world that you know have demonstrably inferior human rights protections to uh, the United States, which, of course, uh, Republicans think uh, is the great human rights champion of the world. Um, so fast forward to um, the establishment of the Human Rights Council in 2006. Um, this was a wonderful example of what I'm talking about, that the Republicans were in, in, intensely mistrustful of uh, the Commission on Human Rights and then the Human Rights Council. Why? Well, mainly because uh, countries of the global south, especially countries with demonstrably poor human rights records, like Sudan at the time of the Darfur genocide and Libya under Muammar Gaddafi, uh, were firstly becoming members of the Commission on Human Rights, and secondly, in one case, were able to actually become the chair or the president of the Commission on Human Rights. Around the same time, for the first time in its history, uh, the United States failed to be elected to the Commission on Human Rights uh, in an election. Um, and all of that was far, was just too much for the administration of George W. Bush. Uh, so he pressed the trigger on basically killing the Commission on Human Rights, uh, which, as I mentioned, the U.S. had become increasingly unhappy with for various reasons, including this issue of membership. Um, and including its big focus on Israel and Palestine. Um, uh, and so they wanted to replace the Commission on Human Rights with something that they would be more able to control again. And this, this is why history is sometimes circular. So what was, what was their proposal? Well, they pulled Kofi Annan to Washington and said that, in their opinion, the Commission on Human Rights should be replaced by a smaller, stronger Human Rights Council, which would be based and look very similar to the Security Council. So perhaps 15 members, only countries with quote-unquote good human rights records would be able to sit on it, meaning, in the view of, of the Bush administration, basically Western countries, um, and they would essentially sit and pass judgment on human rights violations uh, going on in other parts of the world. And as you can gather, by this time, the positions that I outlined before, that the Africans and Asians 
wanted to look at country specific and the western powers didn't had completely changed that really changed in the seven, late 70s and 80s and now it was the us and the western powers that wanted to use the un human rights system principally uh, to condemn and criticize uh, developing countries that they did not see eye to eye with um so that was their proposal to create this small western led really human rights council Unsurprisingly, it didn't fly. Uh, the African group in particular fought back. Um, and in the end, they won the negotiations at the General Assembly. Uh, and the result, which was General Assembly Resolution 60-251, created a Human Rights Council, which much more closely um, represented or reflected what the African group and the big developing countries wanted. Um, so still, instead of 53 members in the commission, it was 47 members, so still much bigger than the US wanted, a much big, bigger representation on the membership for African and Asian countries, and a big focus on cooperation rather than confrontation, and that's where the uh, the Universal Periodic Review came, came in. Um, and then uh, because that resolution didn't reflect what George W. Bush and John Bolton, when he was U.S. ambassador to UN, wanted. They'd been defeated, basically. Uh, the U.S., as is probably well known to your listeners, voted against the resolution establishing the Human Rights Council, along with about four other countries, uh, and then decided to disengage, uh, so not participate in the Human Rights Council. Uh, fast forward again to the election of Barack Obama, and interestingly, I think um, one of his first major foreign policy decisions was to bring the United States into the Human Rights Council. And I think that was because he believed in human rights, he believed in the UN and multilateralism, uh, but also the Human Rights Council had become a political dividing line between the Republicans and Democrats in the United States. And you're seeing that again now. Uh, I saw, for example, in December that Joe Biden said if he was elected president, he would bring the, the U.S. back into the Human Rights Council. Um, but it's still very interesting that one of his first big foreign policy decisions was to take the United States into the Human Rights Council. Uh, so he called uh, Helen Clark, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and asked New Zealand to step aside <laughs> in that year's election, and the US kind of rode into town. And to be quite frank, and I'm not just saying that because I guess a lot of your the listeners are American, um, the US really was an incredibly powerful and positive member of the Human Rights Council under uh, President Obama. Uh, did a huge amount of good at a thematic level and a country-specific level. Um, and that, of course, continued until uh, the election of, of uh, President Trump. And as you said, John, um, then the U.S. administration was from a very early stage on a collision course with the Human Rights Council. Um, it was clear that they wanted uh, a fight with the Human Rights Council. Um, and therefore, they put at least Nikki Haley, when she was ambassador, put down these three demands, uh, two of which were get rid of item seven, which is the agenda item focused on Israel and Palestine. Uh, secondly, and importantly, and again, in an echo of the past, uh, improve the membership and stop countries like uh, 
China and Russia and Venezuela and others from becoming members of the Human Rights Council. Um, we actually, because uh, I was involved in all of these discussions in Geneva, uh, we actually got quite close to getting a package together that would have allowed the United States to stay. And it's my somewhat controversial uh, opinion, but this is born through a lot of experience working with American diplomats at the time, that in reality, the United States didn't want to leave. Uh, the problem is they'd created these three demands and it, they therefore created a, a cross for their own back. Um, and when the, these demands were not met, much to their frustration, they were obliged, really, uh, otherwise they would be humiliated. Uh, they were obliged to carry through their threat and to leave. Uh, and when they left, of course, they uh, started calling the Human Rights Council a quagmire and uh, a swamp, and things, <laughs> which, again, you're probably familiar to people who followed Washington recently, uh, the, uh, President Trump talking about swamps. Um, yes. Um, and so uh, they left the Human Rights Council. Uh, the consequences, I would say, for the Human Rights Council have been not bad at all, uh, contrary to the expectations of many in the West, but I would say especially contrary to the expectations of the Trump administration. The Human Rights Council did not collapse, uh, did not get worse in terms of the work it was doing. Uh, and they were basing that expectation on the fact that uh, in the early years of the council, when President George W. Trump uh, had left uh, or pulled the U.S. out of the Human Rights Council, uh, well, they never joined the Human Rights Council in the first place, uh, the, the Human Rights Council did really struggle in those years without the U.S. there. And so I think people thought it would be the same. But contrary to those expectations, the Human Rights Council uh, has really gone from strength to strength, in my opinion, over the past two or three years. Uh, other countries have stepped up uh, to take on some of the country-specific work, such as Iceland has done a great job as a new member. They replaced the US when the US stepped down. Um, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom have taken up a lot of the weight uh, uh, and gaps left by the United States. Um but more broadly, I would say that the atmosphere improved. Uh, it became, the Human Rights Council became less confrontational, less of a battleground for the West against the rest, um, less politicized, and countries became more able to try to empathize and understand each other's positions and try to reach common ground, even if they finally were unable to. Um, and the other key consequence of the U.S. withdrawal, uh, and again, you saw this coming in the news coverage of last week's special debate on the United States, uh, the Human Rights Council, is the rise of China. Um, unsurprisingly, as the U.S. pulled out, the one country that was very pleased about that was China. Uh, and China has absolutely stepped into the breach left by the United States. Um, the U.S. Um, really made a, a strategic error there, I think. I mean, China, up until five years ago, was a relatively, I wouldn't say weak player at the Human Rights Council, but they really weren't a particularly influential 
player. They often lost key votes. Uh, they often have, didn't have much of a sway. They didn't have their own initiatives. Uh, but since the U.S. left, all of those things have changed. And now China has become one of the most active, influential uh, and influential countries are members of the Human Rights Council. And for the first time in the history of the United Nations, has started coming forward with its own initiatives, such as on win-win cooperation, such as on human rights and development, which really push a Chinese-centric vision of what the UN human rights system is and what it's there to do. Uh, so, the, of course, the final question, and then I'll stop, is um, will the big debate and the kind of slapping of the wrist that happened last week, which was unimaginable up until five years ago throughout the entire history of the UN, unimaginable the, the United States, there would have been a debate about the human rights situation in the United States, in the United Nations Human Rights Council or in the Commission on Human Rights before it. And yet that's what happened. Uh, and even, of course, there was talk about setting up a commission of inquiry. Uh, the concern, of course, for many of us was if the, that initiative went too far, then it would make it impossible for a potential President Biden to rejoin the Human Rights Council. Um, my feeling is that it didn't go too far and the end result was fairly middle ground. And so, um, you know, hopefully that leaves the door open. Well, you've raised a number of really important issues, not the least of which is the consequences of American withdrawal from the world stage more generally and where China fits into that picture. But I did really want to ask you about this uh, possibility that was uh, uh, reported last week of the UN creating a commission of inquiry uh, about racism in the United States and the history that you've told us about uh, you know, the centrality of race and racism and segregation and apartheid in the history of the United Nations, uh, and it's particularly its human rights-oriented activities, uh, is obviously relevant here. And uh, we're talking basically about a situation and, and, you know, the way you recounted the story of conservative unease with the UN, it basically, in a way, is about questioning this sometimes, you know, thought to be unquestioned notion of American exceptionalism, that the United States is somehow uniquely, you know, positioned uh, above all nations and, you know, is immune to criticism. I mean, the fact is that, you know, blacks in the United States petitioned the United States uh, around 1950, I think it was, uh, with this document, uh, We Cry Genocide, and, you uh, you know, had sought to use the UN as a as a way of addressing uh, issues of race and racial discrimination in the United States. But in any case, uh, you started to describe the uh, trajectory of this debate about a possible commission of inquiry. So I'd appreciate it if you could uh, get into more detail, let us know what the debate was about and what are the chances of this commission of inquiry actually coming into existence. Yeah. Well, I mean, a good place to start is what you just said, uh, John, about American exceptionalism, and that's crucial to understand what happened uh, last week. And I think a very nice illustration that American exceptionalism vis-a-vis -vis the UN is alive and well um, was the fallout from, uh, I don't know if you or your uh, colleagues recall, but a couple of years ago, the UN special 
rapporteur on extreme poverty, um, visited the United States, uh, Philip Alston, uh, an Australian um, a jurist and academic, um, visited the United States to undertake a mission into extreme poverty. Um, and he, he shortly afterwards visited the UK and his, his findings were remarkably similar in the two places. Uh, and he basically, his report was, it was devastating because he laid bare the terrible uh, inequalities in the United States, the terrible levels of, of discrimination, racial discrimination, uh, especially when it comes to um, uh, social rights, like the right to education, uh, the right to food, the right to water and housing. Uh, the right to health, of course, incredibly uh, important in the United States, even if the U.S. doesn't recognize health as a right uh, or any of those rights. Uh, any of those social rights I just mentioned as rights, um, except maybe the right to education. Um, and in response, rather than, you know, listening to the report, saying they disagreed with parts of it. However, there were some useful rec recommendations in there which the U.S. would look at. Uh, Nikki Haley went on TV and basically said, how dare this uh, U.N. special rapporteur come over here, and these are almost her words, um, uh, to the greatest democracy and the greatest proponent of human rights in the world, and criticizes. Uh, she said the United the role of the United Nations Human Rights Council and its mechanisms isn't to come over here and, and talk to us or criticize us. It's to go to places like the Democratic Republic of Congo and Burundi and hold them accountable for the terrible violations that are happening there. Uh, and that I think was a very kind of explicit uh, recognition or, or example of what you were saying, John, about U.S. exceptionalism. Um, and that played out last week. Um, you know, I think the, the Trump administration uh, was incandescent. The, the little United Nations, led by those same African countries that Nikki Haley had, had said should themselves be the focus of the UN human rights system, had had the temerity to bring up the situation of racism in the United States before the attention of the members of the Human Rights Council. They just couldn't believe it. And you saw it with Mike Pompeo's uh, comments afterwards as well. Um, but one of the key principles of the Human Rights Council is non-selectivity, meaning that human rights are universal, and therefore, the purview of the Human Rights Council is also universal. It should look at human rights violations wherever they happen in the world. So actually, the United Nations Human Rights Council was absolutely correct and was absolutely working within its mandate uh, to look at the situation of racism and the killing of, of uh, African-Americans by the uh, American policemen um, the attacks against the protests and protesters, uh, the very um, serious attacks against uh, journalists that happened regularly over a few uh, a few weeks there in the United States, seemingly done in some cases on purpose. Um, these, the Human Rights Council simply has to be willing to look at these issues. Otherwise, it's not really 
uh, doing its job properly. However, uh, this is where probably my view and the view of many other NGOs uh, splits, um, because as you know, a lot of NGOs, especially uh, American NGOs, um, including some very big, famous uh, U.S. civil society actors, uh, pushed for a commission of inquiry, uh, which is basically the nuclear option when it comes to human rights council mechanisms. Usually these things are established to uh, investigate gross and systematic human rights violations in places like uh, Syria or against the Rohingya in, in Myanmar. Um, it's kind of unprecedented to uh, have such uh, um, a commission of inquiry in a democracy with rule of law and uh, an independent judiciary uh, like the US, especially an independent judiciary, judiciary that seemingly is looking into these cases of police brutality um, and holding the, the officers to account. Um, so I think this was uh, perhaps a, a bridge too far, um, but it also had, for, and this was important from my point of view, potentially long-term, very negative political uh, consequences, potentially, and that was that uh, if such a commission of inquiry were established on the United States, I doubt very much it would do much good because the United States simply would not allow this commission of inquiry to enter its territory. Um, but it could do damage in the long term uh, in terms of um, making it virtually impossible that any future US administration would ever be able to bring the United States back onto the Human Rights Council. Uh, because they would just be, even if it was a Democrat like uh, like Biden, they would just be attacked so viciously by the Republicans for being involved with this. Um, they would say you know, double standards organization that you know is setting up commission of inquiries on Syria, Myanmar, and the United States. <laughs> that it would be impossible to foresee. Um, uh, the US ever coming back again. And quite frankly, even though the Human Rights Council has done very well uh, in the in the absence of the US over the past three years, unquestionably, uh, the Human Rights Council is stronger with the US as a full member. And the US is a better country for, by being a member of the Human Rights Council. So we should avoid that. Fortunately, in the end, as you may know, uh, this proposal for commissioning, well, fortunately, in my opinion, I would say, and not in the opinion of many others, um, uh, this proposal for commission of inquiry didn't fly. And instead, uh, a resolution, fairly generic, talking about racism and police brutality around the world, but of course, mentioning in particular uh, the killing of George Floyd, Um and clearly, implicitly, much of the resolution was talking about the US and the Black Lives Matter protests. However, it was, I think, sufficiently a, a compromised text, and there was no commission of inquiry, just a report by the High Commissioner um, that uh, I think and I expect that it it wouldn't act as a barrier to potential uh, US membership in the future.
Thank you. That's very helpful for making sense of what happened. Um, and I guess it raises larger questions about the Trump administration's posture with regard to human rights more generally. Um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has had his own interpretation of what that term means, but I don't think it's really what the rest of the world usually means when they talk about human rights. So could you talk a little bit about the administration's you know, posture with regard to human rights more generally? Yeah, well, I mean, the, I mean that that in this sense, it's not really changed with with the Trump administration. There's always been these definition definitional issues um, going right back to the uh, negotiation or the agreement on the Universal Declaration and then the two covenants. The U.S. Unsurprisingly to your listeners, I'm sure, has always liked the covenant on civil and political rights um, and has never liked and never ratified the covenant on economic, social and cultural rights. And there's a reason for that. And that's because in the US, at least the view of successive US administrations, but probably reaching its peak now with the Trump administration, um, Human rights is essentially about uh, civil and political freedoms. Um, So it's not, which is the case with the covenant on on economic and social rights, it's not about uh, governments having an obligation to progressively improve the socioeconomic standards of living um, of its people in a non-discriminatory way. Um, which, will, of course, sounds probably to some American ears sounds very communist or at least socialist. Um, it's really to focus a on civil and political rights, especially democratic rights, things like freedom of expression, uh, freedom of religion, um, freedom of opinion, freedom of assembly. Uh, so, so it's to focus on those freedoms, and as I said earlier, it's to do is to focus on those freedoms and their violation in other countries, uh, especially in uh, developing countries and especially in countries uh, that are kind of geopolitical rivals or um, enemies even of the United States, uh, like Iran, for example, or North Korea or China. Um, And so that was perfectly encapsulated in this proposal from as you say, uh, Mike Pompeo uh, for this kind of new uh, kind of new set of human rights, or should we say, fundamental freedoms. Um, and but it it didn't really have, I think, anyway, any impact or any consequences outside of Washington. At least nobody seemed to batter an eyelid at the Human Rights Council. Nobody even really spoke about it. So I think it was mainly from a, for a domestic audience. Um, so one of the interesting questions, I think, uh, John, which will be really interesting for uh, an American audience to keep an eye on, um, should um, uh, Joe Biden win the presidential election, is will the, I would say, the upsurge in America in awareness about social rights in particular um so for example i've watched with interest these uh many of the protests that have gone on over the past 
a year or two in America. And you're often now seeing placards being held up saying housing is a right, not a service. Uh, Health uh, is a right, not a matter for insurance companies. Uh, Education and non-discrimination in education is a human right, Um, which is really remarkable, I think. Uh, And I'm not sure whether it was always there and I just didn't notice it before. Uh, But it's going to be very interesting to see if uh, Joe Biden should win the presidency, Um, if you will see a change in U.S. position towards uh, this wider body of internationally recognized human rights, such as uh, the Covenant on Economic, Social and and Cultural Rights. Uh, Also, of course, the uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, which is now the only, the US is the only country in the world uh, that hasn't ratified the Convention of the, on the Rights of the Child, uh, which is scandalous when you think about it. Um, uh, and yet, you know, it's, it's just never happened. So will, again, uh, Joe Biden, not only should he win, bring the, human, uh, the United States on back onto the Human Rights Council, but will he reassess the US uh, views about what human rights are and are not, and whether he will take a more uh, positive dispensation towards economic, social, and cultural rights. Um, this is fascinating, uh, particularly in the sense that we've used the term, or I've invoked in any way, in any case, the term American exceptionalism, because it's often forgotten that the term kind of cuts two different ways. I mean, one is the interpretation that we were talking about that leads conservatives to be not very excited about the idea of an international body scrutinizing, uh, you know, inequalities and, and racial practices in the United States. But another version of it really uh, is about the fact that um, there hasn't been a socialist or a very strong socialist movement in the United States, or there hasn't been a labor party, uh, or there's been, you know, reluctance to uh, get on board with things like the uh, covenant on economic and social rights, uh, and a general kind of lack of uh, support for these kinds of policies. I mean, the fact that the United States still doesn't have a universal health insurance policy, really, um, and it doesn't have, uh, it's the only country in the developed world that has no paid sick leave, you know, guaranteed paid sick leave policy. So in many ways, it's obviously an outlier. Um, and in that sense, of course, it's, uh, you know, it, it has many sins to account for. Um, but your comments uh, also raise the question about, you know, I hate to ask you to speculate, but, you know, you've raised the question of what will happen if Joe Biden is elected. Uh, And I wonder whether you could say, you know, how you foresee things developing with regard to American relationships with international organizations such as the UN and and the Human Rights Council. You've already said a number of things about that. Um, Of course, there's also the possibility that Donald Trump will be elected, reelected at the moment. His poll numbers seem pretty dismal, but their election is several months off and, you know, who knows what's going to happen. So I don't want to really ask you to prognosticate, but if you could lay out, uh, you know, your expectations about where things will go after the election, I'd be interested to know. Well, I mean, I guess the easiest place to start is to uh, 
say without taking sides although probably people know that i'm a believer in the un and human rights they probably know <laughs> which way i would vote if i was an american citizen uh, but anyway without taking political sides i think it's clear that if if uh, donald trump were to win a second term um the the relationship with the united nations would become increasingly fractious and you know they they've obviously already left the human rights council i think they left even though it seems a long time ago unesco uh um over the palestinian issue um they're now threatening of course to leave the world health organization and you know this is this is a very obviously a pattern and it's a it's a nationalist pattern as you said a second ago john it's very easy for um <clears throat> For populist leaders or nationalist leaders um, to blame ills on, you know, ill, poorly defined groups of foreigners or international out-of-touch uh, organisations or supranational bodies like the European Union in the case of uh, the Brexit movement in the UK, um, and uh, so and that impulse will clearly not. Uh, go down in the in a future potential uh, Trump administration. Um, in addition, the um, United States, I think, increasingly realizes that it did make this what I talked about before strategic error in leaving bodies like the Human Rights Council. Um, not only did it um, basically. You, in one swell swoop, you took away the main defender of Israel for a start. I mean, the the I said before the, the the country most happy when the U.S. left the Human Rights Council was China. The country most dismayed was Israel because uh, the U.S. would no longer be there to to defend them in the Human Rights Council, and in particular in the context of Israeli settlements in in the occupied Palestinian territories. Um, and the problem is, if you put those things together, this tendency to blame uh, supranational organizations or, or foreigners, um, with this growing sense of a, a loss of control and influence, then that's pretty combustible, uh, because it just means that a future administration uh, would just lash out um, whenever things seem to be going against them or whether whenever they're not getting their way in any international organization uh they would just say you know this is uh, this is now chinese dominated or russian dominated or um or it's not doing what we want it to do and therefore the easy thing is just to pull out uh, so i think that's fairly bleak but fairly clear what would happen uh, in terms of uh joe if joe biden uh won I think, to be honest, it's equally clear that you would see a very strong re-engagement um, of the United States with the United Nations. Um, the Democrats were have, have never, I think, seen what's happened over the past few years as a wise course. I remember uh, shortly, well, towards the end of the presidency of, of Barack Obama, um, the uh, Human Rights Commission or Committee in the U.S. Congress organized a hearing to talk about whether Obama had taken the right decision um, to um, 
re-engage with the Human Rights Council. Um, and there was me and there was Ambassador Keith Harper, who was the US ambassador um, to the Human Rights Council at the time, um, who spoke on that in that hearing uh, in Congress. Um, and it was clear, I think, to any Democrat, but also to any impartial person, uh, that the uh, decision had been a, a good one and had there'd been very positive, um, substantive results from US leadership in the Human Rights Council for human rights around the world. Um, and I think, you know, that plus the fact, as I mentioned before, that um, that one of Barack Obama's first foreign policy decisions was to apply for membership of the Human Rights Council uh, means, for better or for worse, that it, this is a partisan thing now. And I think uh, the likelihood is, and indeed he did, he said this in December on Human Rights Day, which was, of course, before he got the nomination. Um, but I, I, I expect he would follow through and would apply uh, to bring the United States back uh, into the Human Rights Council. Uh, not, a, not because he wants to avoid the US being criticized like it was last week. But because I think he he understands that the U.S. Uh, U.S. leadership is needed on the international stage on human rights issues, uh, both in its own right, but also because if the U.S. isn't there, then it cedes the floor to countries that have a very different position and very different vision for international human rights. And by the way, I would expect that. Um, um, that reattachment or reintegration of the United States with the UN human rights pillar uh, to be replicated with other parts of the UN. I think you would see, for example, a renewal of US um, leadership on, on climate change to try to help um, um, push the, the Paris Agreement uh, forward, which I think it was Joe Biden who signed it for the US. Um, and in things like the World Trade Organization, which is also in Geneva, of course, and doesn't get much attention, but is basically on life support <laughs> at the moment, um, um, because the US, of course, again, defunded it, and uh, therefore it's, it had, it's, some of its key bodies have not been able to, to convene. Um, and I'd, I'd be very surprised if this, this uh, reintegration didn't happen. The only thing that could stop it, I thought, at least from the Human Rights Council perspective, would be would have been precipitous action last week. Uh, for example, establishing a Syria-like commission of inquiry to look into uh, supposed gross and systematic violations in the US. Uh, that would, I really do fear, and I think a lot of American diplomats feared this as well, that would have been a deal breaker uh, for, for Joe Biden to be able to to come back um but luckily i think we just about or the human rights council managed to adopt a strong resolution which made the point that nobody is above scrutiny uh, and actually the u.s ambassador acknowledged that that nobody is above uh, scrutiny however it didn't go too far to uh, preclude a possible future um, re-engagement by the u.s let me ask you one final question, which is, once again, 
perhaps a bit in the realm of speculation. But um, I think for American listeners, it may be worth hearing your thoughts. Uh, I mean, I talked to many European colleagues and interlocutors, and you know, my sense has been that since the uh, COVID uh, crisis uh, began to unfold, you know, they've looked at the United, and then in turn the you know outrageous killing of George Floyd and the protests that have ensued and the sort of triple crisis that we've been, you know, confronted with, there's just been this sense of kind of horror and stupefaction really on the part of you know the people that I know who are not a random sample, I, I understand, but who look on in the United States uh, with horror about, you know, what's happening. And, um, so the question really is about, you know, the prospects for the renewal, the rejuvenation of American, you know, leadership. I mean, there is this in the world, there is this kind of sense, as you were saying, that, you know, people have discovered that the United States is necessary in certain kinds of situations. And I think many people have felt as though, you know, in the current uh, regard to the coronavirus crisis, that there's a crisis that the United States simply is not doing anything really to lead at a global level. And so I wonder, you know, y- y- we began with your recounting the history of how, um, of the irony that, you know, the United States in many ways created the United Nations, and yet it's always had this kind of uh, tense relationship with it. Uh, I just wonder whether you think that there's any prospect of you know recreating the kinds of circumstances in which that uh, happened, or is American leadership? I mean, I think many European European leaders have concluded that they really can't rely on the United States anymore as a partner and have to really run their own show at this point. So I wonder how you think about that. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Um... I mean, I've waited right to the very end to uh, to disagree with anything you've said, John. So I've been very polite about it because I've agreed with everything you said. But here, and I, I understand it was uh, a provocative question. But I'm not sure that uh, Europeans or the US's natural allies um, have really been taken aback by the killing of George Floyd or the reaction uh, to that or the protests or the obvious simmering kind of undertone of racism and racial discrimination in American society and the, the enormous inequalities uh, in American society. Um, you know, I think those of us who who follow international affairs and who read the newspapers know that's always been there, uh, just like it has, by the way, in other places like the United Kingdom. I'm I'm from the UK, and you know the the US and the UK are two of the most, uh, of course, richest, most powerful countries in the world. But they're also two of the most unequal uh, countries in the world, um, both socioeconomic inequalities, but also racial uh, inequalities. Um, so I don't think that that is a surprise. Um, all that's happened, I think, with COVID nineteen is COVID nineteen has brought all of this into the open and it's made it front page news whether it's um you know the the um the disproportionate uh, number of deaths among black communities in the united states 
Um, obviously, the George Floyd killing was not directly related to COVID-19, but all of these issues of racial discrimination are all linked. In the United Kingdom, a week or so ago, there was a report into uh, British Asians and, um, and African um, citizens, which showed the same thing, that they've been disproportionately affected by um, in a health sense, but also in an employment sense uh, by COVID-19. Um, so I don't think uh, things have surprised Europeans, but I think just the COVID-19 has brought it onto the front page. And then what I think, of course, has, has been dismaying for all of America's friends has been uh, the US administration's reaction. Uh, and I think that's what's really shocked people, including me. I mean, you know, to see, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, unprovoked uh, attacks regularly uh, by police personnel against unarmed protesters, um, seeing, you know, uh, all these videos of, of black people being shot when they're got their hands in the air and they're trying to run away uh, for no other reason than they're black. Um, to see uh, journalists from Australia and the United Kingdom and other countries being deliberately targeted by police and hit and shot. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the kind of stuff you would expect to see in Venezuela or, or uh, Russia, not the United States. So I think that's, uh, what shocked people, but I also think people, uh, and again, the United States friends, they're able to distinguish between the United States of America as this as a country, as a nation, a state, a nation state, and the Trump administration. Um, and I think a lot still think this is an aberration, and that you know there's a bit of a kind of midlife crisis going on and the United States will come out at the other end. And I think a good example of that is what happened last week again at the Human Rights Council. Because the reason, though, in the end, that the resolution on the situation of Black Lives Matter protests and other related uh, examples of racial um, uh, tension in the United States why that didn't go too far, i.e., you know, a very condemnatory resolution and a commission of inquiry, was because America still has a lot of friends in the world. Uh, obviously, especially in the Western group, but also in the African group. Um, this was obviously an, Ar an African proposal, uh, proposed sitting, and a lot of African countries were uneasy about pushing too far. Um, and many other developing countries spoke very eloquently about, as I said before, the fact that no country should be off the radar of the Human Rights Council. However, any action by the Human Rights Council should be proportionate. Um, and I think all of those countries did so um, because it was the right thing to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis the situation and the particular violations that have gone on in the US. And as I mentioned, the fact that it's a democracy with rule of law and, and an independent judiciary. But they also did so, I think, because they genuinely hope uh, and expect the United States to come back and they want to leave the light on or leave the door open, however you want to say it, um, so that you, the US can come back and play what they all think is its rightful role at the heart of the UN. 
Well, I'm delighted to hear there's such optimism out there, uh, and uh, I hope developments uh, bear out that optimism and that we can all share it and look forward to the return of that country. Uh, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Mark Lyman of the Universal Rights Group for his insights about the relationship between the United States and the United Nations, particularly around human rights issues. And I also want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons.